I'm Grant Oliphant, and this is We Can Be. According to a 2018 Psychology Today article, it is estimated that the typical adult makes nearly 35,000 choices each and every day, ranging from whether to get out of bed or push the snooze button on our alarm clocks, who we choose to interact with on social media, or the music or podcasts we choose to listen to. We assess our options, make choices, and act accordingly, but some of those assessments and the resulting actions have more lasting consequences than others. How do we choose, whether consciously or unconsciously, to define the other humans in our families, neighborhoods, and world? Do we make those assessments based on the positive attributes or potential that we see in them, or by the attributes we often wrongly perceive to not be there? Our guest today is Trabian Shorters, and he has carefully considered that very question throughout his very impressive career. And in the process, he has become a leading international authority on the cognitive structure of asset framing. Trabian is the co-founder and CEO of Miami, Florida-based BME, which has nearly 30 affiliated communities around the country, including here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Since 2013, he has guided the organization's network of innovators, leaders, and champions who invest in the promise of those communities. The success of BME's Leadership Fellowship Program for Black men and women is proving the transformational power of asset framing and has, in the process, helped over 2 million families secure educational, economic, human rights, and health and wellness opportunities. He is a former vice president of the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, a retired tech entrepreneur, a New York Times bestselling author, and is, in his words, a doting father of two brilliant black twin girls who will live in a better world that we are making together for them. Trabian Shorters, welcome to We Can Be. Thanks, Grant. Pleasure to be here. I really love that description of that guy that you... uh, (laughs) I want to meet that cat. (laughs) It's sometimes daunting to learn how other people think of us, but there you go. I have found you personally to be an inspiration and helping me see the world with new eyes. I think your background serves as a beautiful example of the importance of asset framing defining individuals according to their potential and not their perceived deficits. You grew Mm -hmm. up in Pontiac, Michigan in the 1970s and 80s in a family that I understand faced economic challenges. And as a kid, you earned a scholarship to one of Michigan's most prestigious private schools. How did that whole experience actually begin to affect your thinking around asset framing? Wow, I love that you did your research. I was born and raised in Pontiac, Michigan, uh, that once upon a time made Pontiacs. The factories itself would defunct pretty much in the late 70s, early 80s. And so we experienced going from a working class community to a real poor community. And it just so coincide with the onset of crack and gang violence, and that became the new norm. Ironically, my introduction to how to think about people was not from an asset-framed narrative. It was more from seeing kids who are born into a circumstance where they were normal, just like me and you. But by the time I got to high school, most of the boys on my block had experienced gun violence. Some had been killed, some had been arrested, but their trajectory was dramatically different. It was knowing so-called criminals, but I knew them when they were four and five years old, just like me, like we played kickball. They were just like 
any other kid. You know, what that would seem to feed is the classic deficit view of life. So much of our society looks at the world through a problems lens and says, yes. yeah, how do we fix these people? Yeah. How did you see it differently? Yeah, well, certainly as a kid, I didn't see it differently. But where I turned the corner was, as a young adult, I, I totally committed my life to like, how do we improve these conditions? And I remember being at a conference, I was maybe in my mid-20s. You know, there's a thousand people all involved in national service, community service. But I'd say of that crowd, three, four percent of us were black. At the end of the day, there were these informal salons where the black folks would meet in each other's hotel rooms and have the same conversations just sort of amongst fam, right? We were taking turns introducing ourselves. And the guy who spoke before me said, my name is so-and-so. I'm from this town. You know, my dad wasn't in the house. Our community was violent. I had no positive black male role models. That's why I do what I do. Right. And then I basically ran down the same introduction. And by the time the third guy started up, a woman named Octavia Wilson, who was maybe twice our age, interrupted. And she said, you know, why do you guys keep saying that? You literally had no positive black male role models your entire life. How is that so? And when she said it, it was like she had turned the light on in the room for me because my grandfather was an outstanding dude. My uncle Charles served in two tours in Vietnam and came back and raised his family. And so I was wondering, why do I repeat a narrative that lied on the experiences that I had and lied on these men who had clearly made a difference in my life. And it's because that feeling of being abandoned, of being, you know, afraid in a community that has been derided, I felt that deeply. And I allowed that feeling to be muted into the narrative that was popular at the time, that we were growing up abandoned, that we were growing up without any positive black male role models, that we were growing up bereft of you know positive male influences. I never went back to that. From the time I was 25 years old, I never allowed myself or anyone else to say that I grew up without opportunity. That may have been the very beginning of this appreciation of asset framing because when you look at the neighborhoods, it's just a matter of fact that those kids and those parents and those neighbors in some of the worst places you know in the country, all of them have aspirations. They all want something good for themselves, every one of them, even the guys who get caught up and decide that they're going to make their way in a criminal way, in a violent way. Even they have positive aspirations. They've just determined that they can't achieve them. So they're going to do the next best thing. The good thing about asset framing is it doesn't actually say let's ignore challenges. In fact, the full definition is to define people by their aspirations and contributions before noting their challenges. So the order in which you introduce things is what frames the conversation. And at-risk youth in any of our communities, well, that's already a fear-laden, triggering, biasing introduction. If you were to describe that same person using a term that in most cases does apply, you can call them students. <laughs> and a right. student who lives in a community that's under resourced or redlined, we approach that student very differently than we do the at-risk youth. I was both kids. When a student aspires to graduate and make something of themselves, and there are these systemic barriers obstructing that student, then we actually mobilize to address the systemic barriers. But when an at-risk youth needs to be kept on track so they can graduate, then what we're really doing is we're trying to fix the kid to be less of a threat in the future. But all that changed was the narrative. It's the same kid. It's such a profound difference in terms of what you fund, for example. But I, I think even more significantly, it's a profound difference from a governmental perspective. Yeah. You know, how government and policymakers use these same kids. So you're realizing this when you're at the Knight Foundation and doing nationally important work 
And then you make this curious entrepreneurial decision to leave and to go start Be Me. We are a black organization that legitimately believes in America. So I think we're in a time right now where that spirit of love and power is needed. Be Me is about power and love. The ability to say that you can be whoever you are, you could have been through whatever you've experienced, you could have done wrong or done right, you will be loved here and a part of Be Me. The way that we speak with one another, the way that we share ideas and uplift and try to explain when wherever there is a lack, you don't have to worry because your community, the Be Me community, has you. Be me. <laughs> Be me. Be me. Tell us about the inspiration for that and what motivated you to want to do something national for the entire field. You know, if, if you go by the $76 billion in the field any given year, we spend $76 billion a year to stigmatize people in places. We put billions of dollars on the ground every year to engage people essentially from a fear motivation. And then we wonder why we struggle with community engagement. We, we throw these different parties and the people don't really want to participate. And it's because we've been bad-mouthing them, and we've been paying other people to bad-mouth them. And you mean all this terminology around at-risk and... At-risk, high crime, low income, high poverty, disadvantaged, underserved. And it turns out that it has a set of serious unintended consequences because we deeply associate negative things with these populations. We stigmatize the populations. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is, even when we win whatever victory we're after... We've still written ex-population into the public narrative as a threat. Even our victories end up being ways of institutionalizing bias. I still believe 95% of us really want to help. And so if we could teach people how our decision-making process actually works and show them that when you stigmatize, it actually triggers in your brain, we call it avoid, control, kill. Whether it's you know spiders or rats or roaches or inner-city youth, Anything that is stigmatized, you're hardwired to want to first avoid it. And if you can't avoid the spider, then you have to control it. And if you can neither avoid nor control it, you have to you have to eliminate it. You have to kill it. You can't just let it run around your, you know, your bed while you're sleeping. Logically, you're way more powerful than a spider or, or a roach. But it doesn't matter to that impulse that we have. And the vehicle for what you were just talking about becomes be me. Tell yes. us a little bit about how you were going to reframe this national conversation. Starting from a foundation, we were able to work with some really influential shops to even design Be Me. And they helped us to understand that if we're going to try to tip this thing, especially as small as we are, then to do mass appeal doesn't even make sense. What makes the most sense is to find the influencers of influencers, teach them this, and let them use their institutions to proliferate it, which is why almost all of our asset framing training is directed to the heads, the C-suite, and the program officers of influential foundations. So BME's approach is if we get the influencers of the influencers yeah. to take a different stance, it'll spread. The session that you did for us at the Heinz Endowments was for me one of the best and highest impact trainings that I've had in the race space period. You know, it's not as though I and other leaders haven't had to be doing a lot of work since I think if we're honest, we're in a constant learning journey. Yep. But I have to say that the tra your training, just in terms of helping to see, oh, yes, this is what we're doing wrong, yeah. Yeah. incredibly powerful, and also provides a solution, which is why I'm so delighted that we're talking here. Yeah, let me let me pick up on that, that very thread, actually. Sort of the heart of asset framing is 
built on research by Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman and others in his field, there's a part of our mind that reads circumstances almost instantly, draws all the available associations that it can, and then basically feeds our conscious mind what it is seeing. It literally forms a narrative all the time, and it's always feeding you. 95% of our mental processing is actually done at this intuitive stage. And then your conscious mind is really a backup system that thinks that it's the primary system. The trouble that comes in and what we stumble with is when that intuitive system, which is totally narrative-driven, when the only narratives it has are negative narratives, then that's all that it can work from. It can only work from fear response. So when we talk about asset framing, we're not even saying throw out your deficits. We're saying give a full picture, like know the whole narrative. Like if you only know one side, then you're missing half your opportunities at least. You know, I th- I'm thinking about what you're saying in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement, mm-hmm. the murder of George Floyd, the Trump presidency. And mm-hmm. we have national leaders who are willingly stoking the fires of this negative image. How do you see this concept of asset framing faring at a time when there is so much negativity and yeah. cynical behavior happening yeah. at the leadership level? Look, Grant, I don't think I can be overdramatic about this. I think switching our frame is our only hope of restoring any sanity. Data shows that when you start to really integrate stuff, people don't become less prejudiced. They feel more threatened. And so we can either follow that path and descend into something that does not function like a democracy anymore. Like that writing is on the wall. And by the way, I've trained in the U.S. I've trained in India. And the fact that, you know, the U.S. most prosperous democracy in the world, India, the largest democracy in the world, the fact that these two spaces, it's unclear that their leadership actually even believes in democracy Mm -hmm. is terrifying. The consequences of that, I don't know if we have an experience to measure how dangerous the moment is that we're in. I believe that as well, by the way, and I I appreciate, I thank you for um, saying it so clearly. I really do think asset framing ends up being our, our natural bridge back. And one of our partners and friends in this is a group called the Solutions Journalism Network. Each day we turn to the news to help us navigate the world so we can make informed decisions about our lives and contribute to society. But there's a problem. Rather than helping us chart a path forward, The news leaves many of us feeling powerless, even hopeless. Confronted with nonstop headlines about crises, corruption, and violence, many of us just tune out. This isn't just bad for the news business. It actually started by New York Times columnists run by practicing real journalists and editors. And their issue was, you know, news journalism uh, had so consistently told stories of brokenness without ever explaining what solutions were, that the public began to disengage from the media. Like the CDC has reported that news consumption is a health hazard. The way to solve that is go ahead and tell whatever story you want to have broken. It's like really report hard news, but a rigorous journalist will also research where somebody has found a solution to the problem that you're reporting on. We have to understand how people are trying to solve problems, how they're adapting to new challenges, in order to provide the information that the world needs to self-correct. Solutions journalism offers a lens into new possibilities. And they realized that being able to asset frame populations and regions and situations actually causes you to upscale or level up the type of solution that you look for. People talk about these conditions as though they are unfortunate, right? The less fortunate. Right. Right. Like, you know, like it was a thunderstorm that caused it or, you know, an act of nature. Like there's nothing that can be done when what's really going on is it's unjust. Someone made a decision 
to allow the waters in Flint to be poisoned. Someone made a decision that when young people are gunned down in Pittsburgh, that we're not going to replace the DA, we're not going to change the policing system, we're, you know, we're going to figure out a way to absorb it, right? These are not accidents, these are choices. And the beauty of asset framing is, since you're defining these kids by their desire to grow up and contribute to society, since you're defining you know, these communities by their desire to be healthy and, and secure and stable, then when they're unable to achieve it, you start to look for why. And why is someone made decisions? You start to deal with the injustice. You wrote a really eloquent piece, I think, on this subject in the Chronicle of Philanthropy, where you said, now that we've said the words Black Lives Matter, how do we change things? What is your answer to that question from sure. an asset framing perspective? You know, Black Lives Matter seems like, in many ways, the most obvious of asset framed statements. Mm -hmm. And yet you look at the significant backlash that is mm -hmm. happening on that front and it makes you wonder, can we even agree on this sort of basic proposition that a group of people actually matter in this country? Part of the reason why Black Lives Matter ends up being a contentious concept is the stigmatizing that is so normative when we talk about black people as a group. They come up in conversations about problems. When you say Black Lives Matter, what's bizarre and tragic about it is the reason why some folks react the way they do is when all that you've heard about a population is how they are failing, screwing things up, and potentially threatening. When that's all you know, it actually feels kind of unfair to give them opportunities and resources when those of us who aren't breaking the law aren't having problems. All we're trying to do is care for our family, and somehow these undeserving people are centering themselves and getting resources that should be going to us hardworking Americans. And it's because all we know about this population is their struggle. I do agree that Black Lives Matter would be a no-brainer were it not for this deep stigmatizing of that population. And be me, this year we started a campaign called Live, Own, Vote, and Excel. It's talking to the Black leaders who are proximate to all these communities and asking them what they would put in a Black agenda if it was up to them to create one. The list of things they came up with fell into these four buckets. Black people aspire to be able to live, own, vote, and excel unencumbered in this democracy. Those are our big goals, you know, as a population, right? It's entirely asset-framed, and our argument and our case is those of us in the society who are willing to believe that these basic democratic freedoms should also be extended to Black people, do you think people should be able to live, own, vote, and excel in America? If the answer is yes, then sign up and say so, declare which side of history you're on, and then recognize that supporting these movements for Black lives and for Black ownership and for Black voting and for Black excellence is how you build Black love, because those four letters happen to spell out love. It's a beautiful framing, by the way, and I, I appreciate how asset-focused it is. It's interesting, though, when you talk about democracy as a sacred thing. It doesn't feel like that at the moment. And indeed, some young people don't embrace democratic values in the same way that previous generations have. Yep. Do you find that it is still a compelling argument in the context of the times that we're in? Oh, yeah. In fact, I think a lot of re resistance to democracy as a, as a sacred thing is like the resistance that so many Black people have to the notion of patriotism. When it comes to the Declaration of Independence, for instance, we hold these truths to be self-evident, all people created equal. You know, Black folks and women and so many groups don't rail against the basic idea. <laughs> the idea is beautiful. 
we just weren't included. You know, like that that's what people get upset about, right? They don't feel like the game as it was explained is the game that's being played. Right. Right. I think this generation and Gen Z is genuinely idealistic. They just think that the rest of us have gotten more comfortable with subversion of those ideas than they can respect. These kids grew up watching us kind of fail. Back when George Zimmerman was acquitted for killing Trayvon Martin, if you remember, there wasn't protest. There weren't demonstrations. There was just sort of this sense of shock. Right. right? But no action. There's been a progression. There's been an evolution of public will, right? Right. From shock to anger to, and then, you know, Freddie Gray happens. Then there was revolt. And then you get the stuff with George Floyd and there's this open rebellion. Like it's not even a revolt. That's the point of doneness that people have with this system. And for the young people in particular, they started out on the right side of the question. They've always thought that, you know, justice should be for everyone. We have maybe the largest or second largest generation in our history that has lost some faith in us as the reign holders. But I, I sincerely believe that they are just as idealistic, maybe more so, than any groups that have, that have come before them. The challenge is to know what are the right set of messages. And this is something you spend a lot of time thinking about in terms of persuading people and motivating them in terms of what they care about. It's why I like the Black Love framework that you've created, because it really does give a structure to a set of values that I think everybody could get behind if they really thought about it. You know, there's another way you're leading this narrative change, which is by embracing the power of data. You've said that widely shared data is a key to accurate perception of individuals and communities of color. And you've pointed out that according to federal statistics, I think this is a quote from you, 82% of black men in America are not poor and 50% are solidly middle class. And that, by the way, runs counter to what a lot of people think they believe. And I think a lot of what we're seeing play out in national politics right now. Yeah. What are some other data points that really speak to you that you think white America is surprised to learn about? We are not actually data-driven decision makers, so I want to be clear about that. What data does is it really confirms our narratives. When someone presents a data point that does confirm your narrative, you go, oh yeah, that's good data. And when they present something that runs totally contrary to your perception of the world, you start to- We discount it. That's right. We start to question, well, how did did they do the study? Who's paying for it? Here's what I always find useful to do, is to give them some actual myth-busting facts from really credible sources. So for instance, a data-driven profile of the African-American community, if you want to do it accurately, they are the population whose men are most likely to have served the country in uniform, right? Or more than the national averages. They are the women who are the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs in the country, right? Black women have created 800 new businesses this morning, statistically, at the rate that, that they've been doing it for the last decade. Yeah. They are the households that give the highest percentage of their income to charity, and they're the fathers who spend the most time actively hands-on engaged with their children, regardless of marital status. By these measures, black folks might be the most patriotic, they might be the most enterprising, they might be the most philanthropic or generous, and they might have the most engaged fathers in the country. Now, that, that runs counter to a lot of our narratives, but what helps to persuade people is the data sources for this patriotism stat is the United States Army. The data source for... The um, business creation stat is the Department of Commerce. The data source for the charity stat is a study that W.K. Kellogg Foundation did. And the data source for black male parenting comes from the Centers for Disease Control's family statistics group. The sources don't have any vested interest in painting it a certain Mm -hmm. way. In fact, you'd think they would go the other way. The fact of the matter is patriotic 
enterprising, generous, and engaged is a data-driven profile of the Black population. It's just we ignore that data because it doesn't fit the other narrative that we spend billions on. When I think about the data that you just shared, pretty damn compelling, by the way, I wonder how we can use asset framing to change American policing. And I recognize that there's a lot wrong with the way in which policing happens and that has to be addressed. But where does asset framing come into this discussion, do you think? I love this question about policing. Back when I was a tech guy, number one, technology is a word we use for new tools that we aren't that familiar with. Once we become familiar with it, we don't call it technology. We call it like the, the cell phone or we call it the TV, right? But when it's new, it's tech. I'm saying the same cultural behaviors apply across racial equity. They apply across any type of systems change. There's four cultures for integrating new technologies. One culture views it as unnecessary. The next one views it as a necessary evil. The third one views it as necessary good. And the fourth one views it as a strategic advantage. And they are sort of sequential stages. When it comes to things like reforming policing, the United States as a nation has been in the unnecessary culture for police reform. Where we might be now is we may have moved up to the necessary evil culture, but the thing that's interesting about necessary evil culture in technology, for instance, people in the necessary evil stage upgrade as little as necessary. They prefer to use tools that are easy as opposed to tools that are powerful. To move from one stage to the next is real victory. The challenge that we often have is we come to these changes reluctantly. So oftentimes we come to these things because we have to, but we're not proficient in it. You can't just force march from a resistant culture to a strategic advantage culture. They have to go through the stages of acceptance. And so in the policing thing, I really do think we're probably at the necessary evil stage, which means it is a victory to figure out uh, solutions that are relatively easy to implement, that folks are actually willing to try, that -hmm. keeps the door open for the next stage of growth. What do you say to people who are impatient and they're done waiting? Yeah, they should be. They should be, and they're right. So let's be clear. They are right. <laughs> what they want is correct. Like ju- a just society, I'm pro that. <laughs> like right, you know, <laughs> right, right. Well, like law enforcement that doesn't, you know, that doesn't include, you know, people who are willing to do really hateful things. Like that, that's better for all of us. You have to fix the problem that they care about to get them to care about the thing you want to fix. That is a really profound observation, by the way. If you're going to motivate people to change, it's important to understand what will motivate them to change. What is it that they want? You had a book on the New York Times and Washington Post bestseller list called Reach, 40 Black Men Speak on Living, Leading, and Succeeding, which include Mm -hmm. contributions from some names that many of our listeners will recognize, including Van Jones, Al Sharpton, Isaiah Thomas, John Legend, and it really was an all-star cast. Was there a story from one of your Reach contributors that particularly moved you or readers most strongly reacted to? Ben Jealous and I created Reach because... Black men are stigmatized, but they're also characterized in these very flat ways. And so just telling, you know, these six-page autobiographies is what they are, like sharing these very short stories about people like John Legend, but also unknown folks like Dwayne Edwards, who started Pencil Academy, or Youssef Shakur, who is an organizer in Detroit. Telling these stories just helped us to see how these men experience the same fears, the same concerns. John Legend, for instance, wrote about how the death of his grandmother affected their whole family. And those kinds of 
you know, losses, particularly for a child, you know, many of us experience, right? And to recognize that this very personal, emotional, heartfelt experience is not only shared by a celebrity, but it's shared by, you know, black men. And then you read another story that shows you that black men have the same experience and another one and another one and another one. And it's like, well, wait a minute. These aren't, you know, these aren't foreign characters that I only see on TV news. These are just people, right? right? And what was interesting is we got a lot of communication from brothers about how much they appreciated the stories as inspiration for their own walks. You know, black people are a curious population because we are mediated to each other. We have a very interesting relationship with ourselves, right? Not only did we come here literally as assets, like we came to this country as assets. Historically, I think we've remained so valuable in America that battles are still fought every day to see who gets to own us, right? Who gets to own our narrative, who gets to own our community, who gets to own our businesses. And so we are mediated to each other. And, and brothers shared how freeing it was to read about us in very human terms and to realize that it's okay for us to be us. Trabian, the name of this program is We Can Be, which serves as an unfinished sentence. And I'm curious, how would you finish it? What do you believe we can be? I sincerely believe that we can be a land of liberty and justice for all. I believe that we can embody it and that we can exemplify it. And that it's important that we do this, not just for the United States, but really for the world. And I know that's maybe an arrogant Western attitude. However, that declaration of independence and that constitution that the country is based on, it was copied by more than 200 governments, right? right? You know, we sometimes forget that modern democracy in the world is based on the United States of America. And we have a responsibility and a duty to model the behavior we want to see in the world. And it's already been proven that we'll be copied. For good and bad, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a beautiful answer. I love it. This whole conversation, I've kept thinking about a quote from Marcel Proust, that the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. And you've you've laid out for us some beautiful ways that we as a society can have new eyes and be the discoverers that we like to pretend we are as a country. One was this notion of focusing on systems. So instead of talking about people as being unfortunate or disadvantaged, let's instead focus on the ways in which they have been wrecked by systems that were almost designed to accomplish that. You challenge us to look at a very different frame for what the aspirations of the black community can be in this country and your notion of black love, live, own, vote, excel, as being important not only to the black community, but to democracy itself, I think is a beautiful way of thinking about that. You said switching our frame is our society's only hope of restoring any sanity. I think taking the seriousness of that on is really important for all of our listeners. And finally, I would say you pointed out for us the importance of forming different narratives, including through telling different stories. And you use data to help tell those stories, but just to think of the black community as the most patriotic, most enterprising, most philanthropic, and most engaged parents is just an example of how we can think differently. Mm -hmm.